The English have a great hunger for desolate places. They hunger for Arabia. I think you are another of these desert-loving English. I've been seconded to the Arab Bureau. Of course I'm a man for the job. What is the job, by the way? Have you no fear, English? My fear is my concern. We need a miracle. They hope to gain their freedom. I'm going to give it to them. The man who gives victory in battle is prized beyond every other man. It's going to be fun. They think he's a kind of prophet. They do, or he does. One more failure, and you will find yourself alone. Who are you to know what can be done? Nothing is written. You're the most extraordinary man I ever met. You are using up your nine lives very quickly. For some men, nothing is written unless they write it. Time to be great again, my lord. Welcome back to the Film 89 podcast. This is episode 88. I'm Sky. I'm Steve. And joining Steve and I tonight is a gentleman ideally suited for the film we're discussing, although I'm sure he's far too modest to admit it. He's a titan amongst the pantheon of film critics and film commentators we've had on Film 89. He's a former co-host and he was here with Steve and I for our Citizen Kane episode last year, which remains our most downloaded episode so far. It is, of course, Mr. Stephen Saunders. Stephen, welcome back to Film 89, sir. Oh, it's lovely to be here, and thank you for that uh, very, very uh, grandiose introduction. I'm, I'm very, very flattered, and I, I didn't know that the Citizen Kane episode was the most downloaded so far. So that's that's incredible news. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Yeah, it did tremendous numbers. And so far this year on Film 89, uh, 2022, if you happen to be listening to this in a few years' time, we've tackled some really big films, films of tremendous importance to us as cinephiles and important well to the history of cinema in general films such as star wars the godfather and blade runner to name but a few 
and they don't come much bigger than the film we're covering tonight as we finally tackle legendary British director David Lean and his monumental 1962 historical epic and war film Lawrence of Arabia. A film that was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and walked away with seven, including Best Picture and Best Director. And in the six decades that have followed, it's certainly gained a hallowed status as one of the greatest films ever made. Lean's film, it tells the story of T.E. Lawrence, the eccentric but brilliant English officer who successfully united and led the war in Arab tribes in a fight against the Turks in World War I. Now, gents, when did each of you first discover Lawrence of Arabia? Well, it's, it's one of those films which was always on televisions when we were growing up, wasn't it? It was always on uh, a bank holiday or Christmas or Easter or something like that. And it was probably the same for our um, listeners in the United States, you know, possibly Thanksgiving or something like that. You know, it was always on. So I watched it many, many times without actually ever properly seeing it, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. Because um, it was always on the bank holiday. It was, you know, it was always on in the background. And when, you know, who wants to see when you're young, you're a teenager who wants to see a three and a half hour movie and with adverts as well, sometimes whatever channel it was on. So it could have been a four, four and a half hour movie. But the first time I saw it properly and the first time I actually sat down and watched the whole thing was luckily for me in the cinema. It was, I think it was in uh, Shaftesbury Avenue uh, up in London, I don't know, 93, 94, something like that. And it was the full director's cut, the full three-hour, 40-minute version. You use the word monumental. It is made out of granite, I think. It's that good. It's David's, you know, uh, the, the statue of David and all these great, great things. That's what it is in cinema. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's. Uh, I think seeing it in the cinema is obviously going to be the gold standard for any movie, but for this movie, uh, more than probably any other, it's it imperative if you're going to get the best out of this film to see it on the, the biggest screen imaginable. I mean, in, in preparation for this, I've been sitting almost nose to my TV screen, uh, watching it just to somehow try and get that experience in, in the comfort of my own home. But I suppose my sort of introduction to this is a little vaguer probably than uh, than Steve's. I suspect it's just one of those films that as a teen and into my early 20s and be, you know being very very interested in cinema I sort of ticked off the list and made sure I'd seen. I would have said coming into this probably my favorite David Lean film would have been Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, I think I've revised my opinion while preparing for this. And I like what Steve said about seeing it without really seeing it. And I feel that way too. And it's, I guess, through the process of preparing for this, I've realized just how staggering it is. Not only sort of visually staggering, but how psychologically rich a film it is as well. So it's a film that I, my, my love for this film has improved greatly let's say while while we've been preparing but it's obviously a film i've watched uh, many times as a as a youngster but perhaps not appreciated as much as i should have done yeah i think that um, you know when uh, when i first started watching it and it was on television that was in the 1980s so you're watching it on it perhaps a 24 inch screen less than standard different definition what we have today you you can't appreciate it then you know so to see it even today on you know, i mean i've got a 40 inch tv now it's still not good enough but at least it's in HD, at least you can see more things than we've ever seen before. But seeing it in the cinema is something that you have to see with this film, I think. I liked what you said as well about, you know, you, you well, you'd seen it on TV and, and then you saw the restored director's cut. And of course, the TV version was quite a bit shorter. It was uh, it was cut following its premiere and then it was cut again for TV. And, and David Lean always blamed Sam Spiegel for that, but that's not actually true. He oversaw all the cuts. And then in the in the late 80s, they managed to sort of piece it back together and got the actors back to redub some of the lines. And now we have the, the full, glorious, epic spectacle, exactly as it should be. 
You know, you, you said this, Steve, about the fact that this was one of those films that was always on TV when we were growing up, one of those bank holiday classics. Now, I've, I've said so many times on the podcast before that I'm very grateful for the kind of um, film education I had from certain family members when I was growing up, from my mum, grandparents, an uncle of mine in particular, who who kind of, from a young age, made sure there were certain films that they kind of sat me down and, and, and encouraged me to watch. And if we're going to class this as... A historical epic. There were certainly lots of films like that, which from a young age I'd seen. Films like Ben-Hur, Spartacus, The Vikings, innumerable westerns, films like The Searchers, and loads of kind of classic black and white screwball comedies, and Doris Day films. I mean, the, you know, the range was huge. Lawrence of Arabia was never one of those films. I've got no childhood memories of ever seeing this film from start to finish. I saw snippets of it when it was on TV, but I was aware of it. But I never watched it from start to finish in its full glory, I'd say, until probably my my early to mid-twenties when I was at the height of my kind of self-imposed film education in, in, in the proper sense. And like you said, Stephen, one of the films you have to take off is Lawrence of Arabia. And I think I probably first saw it, what would that be? Maybe DVD or, or possibly widescreen VHS. But it was certainly much later on in life. And it was a film that when I first saw it, it just completely blew my socks off. You know, I had a certain expectation of it and it did kind of go against that expectation. I expected it to be a kind of, a, you know, a lot more, a lot more of an, you know, an action-packed war film than it actually was. But from the start it was just the sheer spectacle of the film and knowing what I did about the making of the film even then because it was a film I kind of knew a lot about before I actually saw it's just one of those films that over the years the more I watch it the more I appreciate it and seeing it you know in preparation for this episode on blu-ray because I've had the blu-ray of Lawrence of Arabia for years unwatched still in the cellophane and there's countless other films I've got in my collection which have just not been opened up and not been put in my Blu-ray player and this was one of them I'm watching it on my Panasonic Plasma not in 4K but in 1080p high definition it just looked absolutely phenomenal I'm I'm just seeing details and colour that I I just didn't see before on VHS and, and and DVD. It's just a remarkable film and it's basically like, where do you start? And, and I would imagine that the best place really is the film's inception. Yes, well, it's based on uh, the novel uh, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, isn't it, by mm-hmm. T.E. Lawrence. Well, I mean, if you, you, know, you could go all the way back. I mean, they, they were trying to make a film of T.E. Lawrence's life while he was still alive. And he, rather like the character in the film, really, he's sort of torn between wanting to be famous and wanting to hide away. So he had this love-hate relationship, which definitely turned into a hate relationship with the idea of there being a film made. So that was put off. And then uh, he died through a motorcycle accident, which obviously is covered in the film. And then I believe it was Alexander Corder who who attempted to make a film of his life and came across all, all kinds of stoppages. Uh, I think at one point it was illegal to have gatherings of Arabs in Palestine. So that, that stopped it. There was a point at which they, they didn't want to upset the Turks because we're sort of pre-World War II. And so that stopped it being made because obviously there, there's some a very strong sort of anti-Turk sentiment in, in the movie. I think in the 50s or possibly late 40, no, early 50s, definitely early 50s, David Lean was attached to the film. But then that fell through and he ended up making Summertime with Catherine Hepburn and then made Bridge on the River Kwai. And then it all came back round again. And, and finally, uh, David Lean got a shot at it and uh, went through a few screenwriters. I think Michael Wilson, who was the sort of uncredited screenwriter for Bridge on the River Kwai, was attached to it and couldn't quite pull it off and then the playwright of A Man Four Seasons, uh, Robert Bolt, was brought in 
Jordan uh, while uh, Lean was preparing production in Jordan. You, you know, that caused an absolute uproar because Lean had been promised that he would be able to start the film with a complete screenplay. And then there's someone else rewriting the screenplay who he's never actually met while he's while he's setting everything up. And I, I suppose that's where we sort of jump into production, I would say. Thank God, really, for those the way the production came about and the fact that Alexander Corden wasn't successful in making his. Mm. You know, in, in I would imagine that would have been the late 30s. Yeah. Didn't uh, T.E. Lawrence die in 1935? Yeah. Yeah, because ultimately, what would this film be, aside from the filmmaking genius of David Dean, what would this film be without Peter O'Toole? Well, one of the people who were involved in making it as well was um, Harry Cohn of Columbia, I think in 1952, wanted Powell and Pressburger. Mm. to make a version of it. Now, that would be something I would have loved to have seen. Mm. Yeah. It wouldn't have been the same. No, it, it wouldn't have, have not. It, it probably would have been filmed on stages you know, because of the, what they were used to. I mean, that's how they, were, that's how they made their films, you know. Mm. Um, whether you would have gone into the desert of Jordan or Spain or anything like that to actually film it, I, I don't know. But it, it, it is something I would like to have seen. And, you know, as, as incredible as something like Black Narcissus looks, and mm. it looks for a film made in 1947 entirely on sound stages you, yeah. you watch that film and you tell me that they are not real locations in that film i, I to this <laughs> day do not understand how that is the case and i think that's the approach they would have taken if they'd adapted this into a film I would also say that um, I think the Corder version would have been a good movie. I mean, Lewis Milestone, who directed All Quiet on the Western Front, was attached to it, directed at one point. So I think in any period, we would have ended up with a good movie. I think, but you're quite right. It, it, it takes this sort of obsessiveness of someone like David Lean to take you into the desert and to create those otherworldly images. But also, you know, it would take a sort of late 1950s, early 1960s sensibility to give us such an incredibly complicated character you know if in any of those other iterations we would have ended up with a much more straightforward heroic te lawrence and as it is we get a very very ambiguous character who is in some senses both the hero and the villain of the movie i mean he's not straightforwardly good at all uh, in fact he's quite wicked and self-deluding and you could you know you could read volumes into his character um, it's just incredibly ambiguous and incredibly subtle. And I think, you know, again, you have the obsessive attention to detail of someone like David Lean and you have a great a great writer in the, of Robert Bolt. So, you know, I think the film came around at exactly the right time. Yeah. And if we go back, guys, to the episode, you know, the Citizen Kane episode we did last mm. year and, and Charles Foster Kane based on, you know, pretty much based on William Randolph Hearst being one of the most complex characters that we've discussed on this podcast so far, one which we dedicated a big bulk of that episode to dissecting. Mm. He's a fictional character, albeit one based on a real-life person. But I think, without doubt, T.E. Lawrence is. In 88 episodes of this podcast, I'm going to say that I think he is by far the most layered and complex character that we've discussed so far because I've watched this film countless times and there's still little character quirks and still questions I've got about his motivation and just things about him which just seem a complete mystery. Mm. You know, things he comes out with in the film and I think what did he mean by that I've I've thought about it for, for such a long time and I still can't come up with a satisfactory answer to some of the questions I've got about him he's just such a, a fascinating guy mm. one of the ways that uh, a film like this or a character like this would have been portrayed was it would have been the climb 
to glory and then, you know, his messiah um, delusion and everything and then come crashing down. But what Lawrence Arabia does, he does that repeatedly through the film. He is right at the top. He, you know, he believes he is the prophet. And next minute, you know, he's quivering in a in a, an office, afraid to go back out again. Yeah. And then he goes back out again and he becomes the messiah again. That's so strange. It's so complicated that we see him swinging back and forth. You, I, you seem to be like a manic depressive in that respect, but it's not the u- usual presentation of this complex character, of any complex character in the movies. Yeah, mm. absolutely, yeah. Uh, now, Pedro Tool, he was 27 when he was cast as, as T.E. Lawrence and pretty much his first major film role. And Marlon Brando had apparently been considered for the role, but that never transpired. And as phenomenal as an actor that Brando is, Peter O'Toole, I, you know, I can't see anyone else as Lawrence, basically. He he spent three months with the Bedouin before shooting started, acclimating to the heat and learning to ride the camel. Others like Albert Finney apparently was offered the role but turned it down. Phenomenal actor, though Albert Finney is. Again, I, I can't see anyone else playing him other than Peter O'Toole. No. The only reason that Albert Finney turned it down is because he didn't want to sign a seven-year contract with mm. uh, Sam yeah. Spiegel, the producer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, Peter O'Toole was young and hungry. He was willing to make that sacrifice, you know, and he made some good films out of it. Well, Steve, when you say that about the, the filmmaking landscape at the time, I think we've got to go back to our Cleopatra episode we did with James Hancock because that episode was mostly about the making of that film and about, you know, the, the, the landscape of Hollywood at the time, the politics and just the way things were, which are completely different to what they were today, where, you know, a producer, producer's name would headline a film sometimes more than a director. Yeah, this this was, you know, this was around about the same time, wasn't it? Crikey. Um, Cleopatra was, was being shot. It started shooting, I think, probably before this film uh, was finished and was probably still shooting afterwards in, in some form or other, given the fact that, you know, it was such a stop-star production. But that was old Hollywood with old Hollywood stars yeah. who were used to the old system and they were right at the very top of their game and their fame. Whereas this was a young, hung, hungry actor who yeah. was willing to give it all, something that for all the greatness of, you know, uh, Burton and Taylor, yeah. they were they were very much taken as much as they could at the time. And everybody was on, that, on Cleopatra. Whereas in Lean, with um, Lawrence Arabia, it was all about everybody pouring everything into it and giving mm. up a great deal, great great deal of time as well. You talk about um, Riker Bolt. He was only attached to it for a couple of weeks, I think, and he ended up being on there for two years. Mm. And he was supposed to go to um, leave the project very quickly because he had a deadline for a play, and he forgot all about that. He just stayed with the film, you know? Yeah. And um, you can't see that. The only reason that people did that for Cleopatra was because they didn't have any choice, because they'd spent so much money. Yeah. Another bit of casting. I, I'm going to say it earlier. My, my favourite character, in the film Omar Sharif as Sheriff Ali he was cast after the likes of Horst Buchholz and Alan Delon were considered for the role before the Egyptian actor was cast and again mm. I can't imagine anyone other than Omar Sharif and as I've, as I've said before I've, I've got a particular connection with Omar Sharif in this role in this film because even though I didn't see Lawrence of Arabia until probably my early 20s my grandfather who is of he's of Italian Yugoslavian descent and he in his youth I've seen pictures of him, and aside from the fact that he didn't have the moustache, he looked like Omar Sharif. And Mm. I know from things my grandmother told me that he, as a young man, kind of fashioned himself on Omar Sharif. And every time I see him, I'm always reminded of my grandfather. (laughs) And it's always this role. And Mm. even though, obviously, he's in Dr. Zhivago as well, uh, another film which, you know, one which I did see when I was quite young. It's always this role that I go back to, and I always, I always got this like kind of like warm feeling of nostalgia when I see him, and I think, 
Yeah, it's. I know that when my grandfather was, but you know, he, he wasn't a young man when this film came out, but he was. He's probably he's certainly younger than I am now. It, I, I know that this was one of his favorite films, and Omar Sharif was, along with a few others, one of his favorite actors. And mm. I can't see anyone else playing Sheriff Ali. Certainly not no. Horst Buckles. You know, I, mm. I I liked him in in the Magnificent Seven. Alan Delon certainly would have been. You know, he was a phenomenal actor. But I don't I don't think he he would have brought what Omar Sharif brought to this role. No, there, there was another actor actually cast in the role who played the part for a time, a guy called Maurice uh, René, who shot for a little while and, and it just wasn't working out. He was French, so obviously he was having to wear, you know, the, the brown makeup. Um, he refused to wear brown contact lenses and he was blue-eyed and, and David Lean said he just looked like he was walking around in drag. It just wasn't working. Lean basically said to Sam Spiegel he wanted a small stock company of, you know, racially appropriate actors to be hired. And while he was going through uh, pictures, he saw a picture of Omar Sharif, who was not famous in English language movies, but had apparently been a star in Egypt. And then for whatever reason, his star had faded and uh, Lean basically tried to hire him. And and the way um, Omar Sharif tells the story is he said, you know, I, I don't really particularly want this role. It's a small role. I have to audition for it. I'm above this sort of thing, really. But it's David Lean. I really want to work with David Lean. So he so he was flown in. And apparently Lean just sort of looked him up and down, took him into a makeup tent and started putting beards and moustaches on him. And uh, the next thing he knew, he was in this, you know, quite considerable role in the movie, um, sort of much like Peter O'Toole. He'd been sort of plucked out of obscurity and put in the centre of this absolutely colossal movie. And uh, one kind of amusing story I quite like, and it's something I, I noticed when I was watching him being interviewed as an old man, is that Alec Guinness is doing an impersonation of Omar Sharif's normal speaking voice when he's playing the part of Prince Faisal. So they sort of met each other and Alec Guinness started doing impersonations of him, and which has informed how he played the role. Related to Peter O'Toole, I think you know, he is perfect for the role. And I, I think it's part of that, frankly, is his sort of femininity as a man. I mean, it's uh, we've talked about how incredibly complex Lawrence is. And one of his complexities is he's not masculine at all. He's very, very feminine. I'm sure we'll come on to that a bit later. So he was absolutely perfect for the role. And there's a, a lovely joke I like about about the, the, the almost hiring of Marlon Brando, which is uh, a, a journalist saying, is it a speaking part? Which I thought, <laughs> I thought, <laughs> I thought was very funny. Yeah. Well, one of the other people that was also up for the part was uh, Anthony Perkins, apparently. Mm. And um, they were worried that they might be called Psycho of Arabia. <laughs> So filmed in Armoria, Spain, and and predominantly Jordan on on Panavision sixty five cameras, which had to be refrigerated to keep them from overheating in, in temperatures of up to one hundred and thirty degrees Fahrenheit. This film took over two years to film. Mm. Wasn't it? Wasn't it something like two years and th- and three months? Yeah. So yeah, two years and three months. That's an absurdly long time. And. To be filming in one of the most inhospitable filming locations you could possibly mm. ever choose to film in. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I think they did. They did suffer greatly, and there are stories of them, Omar Sharif and, and uh, Peter O'Toole, being flown to Beirut on the weekends and getting absolutely hammered and being very, very hedonistic just to, you know, just to kind of pass the time. And those two became very, very good friends and sort of supported each other because they were both unknowns. And David Lean was an incredibly hard taskmaster. You know, the crew were going off sick with all kinds of 
of diseases. Um, and I think that, you know, the physical act of sort of moving equipment around up and down sand dunes was was incredibly difficult. They were basically living in as, as Bedouins almost in these sort of tents across the desert. David Lean was living in a caravan sort of that had been put on the on a truck that, you know, they had a sort of tavern built in the desert, but it, they suffered greatly. And I mean, one of the oddities of Lean's experience of shooting the movie was that he couldn't actually view any of the rushes. So he was doing all this incredible work, sending it back to Sam Spiegel, um, but he had no idea what what it looked like. And uh, the story is that he contacted Spiegel and said, "Why why aren't you telling me what this stuff looks like? And Spiegel said, I just didn't have the heart, baby. It's awful. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, it transpired, really, that Spiegel was just trying to put him under pressure. And as a producer, he didn't have very much power. And his only power was basically with the power of withholding. Um, but it was, a, I think, a horrible e- experience for Lean as it was for everybody else. And, uh, you know, there were stories of Spiegel saying he's going to come out there or he's going to hire a new broom and sort everything out. And then uh, Lean apparently sh- deliberately in the rushes a shot himself uh, holding a broom saying, come out here, you bastard, you wouldn't last an hour. And then sending that in the rushes back to to Spiegel. And so Spiegel would have seen that in the viewing in the viewing uh, theatre with all of his colleagues. So, uh, you know, they, they had a very, very combative relationship. But it, yeah, it was a, a, a harsh, fiery furnace of hell, I think, for for everybody. And one of the things I've heard is that the nearest well was 150 miles away. Right. So they had to have the water trucked in every single day mm. um, because otherwise because there was nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Tasting that, of kerosene because they, they had to wash out oil tankers and that's how they did it. Oh, so, yeah, it was I mean, I wouldn't drink that. But I suppose if you're, you know, if it's between that and dying in the desert, I, I probably would. But yeah, they, not much yeah. of a choice. Though, was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, you know, just in terms of those logistics alone, it was it was a hellish production and, and one to drag on over two years. Now, we've talked mm. about some pretty hellish productions on this podcast. We've talked about Cleopatra, as we mentioned. We've talked about Blade Runner, Apocalypse Now. Not not a hellish one, but a long one was the you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm. and that was not without its problems. But they were nothing, you know, compared to the likes of those films I've just mentioned, and certainly mm. this one. And you think if he's not seeing those rushes, how does he? You know, he, he must have been so well organized in his shooting schedule and in the mm. notes he was making to know what he was filming, what he had to film, and what he had filmed, mm. in order for the end result to be so coherent. Mm. I mean, there's a guy called Anthony Nutting who did lots of the research on Lawrence that was used for the film. And I think the quote from him is something like it's actually a, a the film is really a love affair between a director, a cameraman and the desert. You know, that's the, what the film's really about. And I mean, there are all these stories about Lean staring through the viewfinder for 45 minutes and then people coming up to him going, are, are you OK? And him just have forgetting, you know, that he's sitting there just staring out at the desert. You know, there are stories of him just waiting for the perfect light, waiting for the sand to eddy in just the right way, waiting for the for the rocks to look just right in the light. And towards the end of the shoot, apparently he was only getting about three seconds of film, usable film a day. I mean, it was ridiculous. Mm. And I think part of the problem, but also obviously the reason why the film is so extraordinary, it was Lean's perfectionism, which drove Sam Spiegel absolutely round the twist, and and which is why ultimately they were dragged out of Jordan completely against David Lean's will and sent to Spain. And you know, and Lean didn't have any idea of what locations they were going to use. Nothing. It was just you know the producer 
completely pulled the plug on them. And, and the feeling was if he hadn't done that, I mean, David Lean, if he was still alive, would probably still be in the desert now shooting eddies of sand and rocks and <laughs> camels you know, from a million miles away. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where you've got a great director who is so obsessive that he actually needed a producer who was a, really a, a hard, hard man to whip him, whip the him you, to getting uh, the film done. The way you describe um, Lean then reminds me of Lawrence when he, just before he makes the decision to attack Akaba. Mm. When he's in the desert by himself and he's, uh, you know, he's in that trance state, trying to think of every possible angle of which to attack, you know. Very similar. Yeah, I hadn't hadn't made that connection, but yes, agreed. Well, let's jump into the film itself then, guys. The film's opening, which, going back to Citizen King, very similar to the opening of our film, because like that film, we see mm-hmm. the titular character's death and then we hear people discussing his life and the kind of man that people thought he was. And the, the very fact that he was buried at St. Paul's is itself uh, a kind of a little statement that this must have been a man of great importance. And then the bust we see of him reads 1888 to 1935, so he was 47 when he died. Mm. And then we cut to Cairo. So we've got to jump back in time many years where Lawrence is is, a, is younger and is a cartographer in Cairo. And we have that first scene of him that in the match burned down to his fingers. And, and him saying, when asked, you know, how do you do it? And he says that well, the trick is not minding that it hurts. Yes. That's key to his character. Isn't it? Yes. it is, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Now, it, it's stuff like that. But it's also the kind of stuff the film doesn't tell you about Lawrence. Mm. Things like that at age 15, he took off on his bike and he toured medieval castles of, of England at the age of 15. Mm. And then two years later, age of 17, he did the same, but he rode around Europe looking at mm. European castles. Then by 21, he'd done the same thing, but in the Middle East. Mm. And it kind of na- made it a name for himself as this young Englishman who was knowledgeable about the Middle East. Mm. He never joined the army, but he ended up being chosen as the ideal person to brief a British general about local customs. But the general refused to be briefed by a civilian, so they put Lawrence in a lieutenant's uniform. He briefed the general, who was obviously really impressed with him, and that was it. All mm. of a sudden, he was a lieutenant in the British army. Yeah. No, an e- extraordinary, extraordinary man. I, I wanted to walk back slightly the opening sequence where we see him fiddling about with his bike i think it's just one of those moments that's so simple but leans sort of precision and intelligence make it something slightly more than it should be i I like the idea that it's shot from overhead and so what what is a very simple scene gains a sort of grandiosity along with Morris Jarre's sort of adventurous sort of sounding music. At that point, the the real man, T.E. Lawrence, in his life, because obviously the, the accident happens after the adventures we're about to see, had become very withdrawn and depressed and everything else. And I like the idea as well, you know, psychologically, it's like, you know, we're having an out-of-body experience with him. I think that's a very, very intelligent decision in terms of the, the, the choice of shot. And also, you know, you talk about the sort of the match burning being the key to his character. You talk about the, the, the history of the real man, uh, T.E. Lawrence. I mean, he was a masochist. He, he liked physical pain. And a story came out about him after he died, which was that he had hired or pay, was basically paying a, a junior soldier in the British tank corps to flog him. For, for fun. And this was a sort of dirty family secret. And so although it's not explicitly mentioned in the film, you know, it was privately known at this point, it became public, but it was privately known that he had these sorts of tendencies. And T.E. Lawrence's brother, A.W. Lawrence, 
absolutely flipped his lid about all this stuff because it was this sort of dirty family secret that was that was bubbling under so you know the, as you say the film hints at history it hints at real events outside of the context of the the actual story that we're being told which i think is one of the things that gives it just layers and layers and layers of interest and makes it sort of eminently rewatchable and gives it some sort of historical gravitas oh yeah and that, now that you've told us that next time i watch it it's certainly going to be something that those scenes the hint of that are just going to stand up even more yes so then after that we've got the scene between dryden played by one of my all-time favorite actors steve <laughs> you know i mentioned this in our casablanca commentary claude mm-hmm. rains and, and he and general murray that. they're having this conversation and it just shows how little importance the british army put in this conflict against the turks in arabia and that's understandably maybe at the time their main concern was the fight against the germans and I love that exchange of follows between General Murray and Lawrence and how irritated by Lawrence Murray is. And the fact it's that my manner, makes... sir. Yes, <laughs> my manner, sir. Yeah, he just makes no effort to, to hide his utter contempt for this this kind of bumbling upstart of a man. There's one thing I wanted to say, actually. I think, you know, Robert Bolt's screenplay is a masterwork of sort of subtle psychological suggestion. And even in these early sequences, we really gain a sense of who Lawrence is. All of the facets of his character are actually already in place, if you care to notice them. So there's a scene just before the scene that you mentioned where he comes into the officer's mess and he's wearing his cap. And the mess officer says, do you always wear your cap in the mess, uh, uh, Lawrence? And he's about to take his cap off. And then he doesn't. And he puts his hand to his, his stomach and says, always sir and it's the idea that anything i do is the right thing no matter what it is it's the right thing so i was you've corrected me i was about to take it off and then i've decided no no matter what i do it's the right thing to do and i think that's part of his character it's part of his one of his character faults and then he takes a a a ball from the snooker table and just smashes up all the balls and so it's as if he's this sort of impetuous maniac you know at the same time that's just suddenly there and then he turns around i think he's called a clown and he turns around and says we can't all be lion tamers sir and knocked knocks over a table and nearly trips himself up so at the same time he's a klutz he's an idiot and then as you say he goes in to to see uh you know the senior officer and does that limp salute and says it's my manner sir i'm not insubordinate it's just my manner sir and it's you know, it's this sense that he has he has no real respect for authority. He has no real interest in the chain of command. It doesn't mean anything to him because he's special. He's different and he knows he's special and different I, already. I'm not one of you. Yeah, I'm well, not he's, he's not, yeah, that's the thing. His his place, his, his position in the British Army wasn't earned in the same sense of he came up through the ranks, he went through, mm. you know, basic and then more intensive training. And, and this kind of refusal to conform and comply and fit in could be said to come from arrogance, but it also comes from the fact that in terms of him being a British officer, he's something of a fraud because it's a position he was gifted instead of earning. And the real the real T, Lawrence, was, you know, I mean, as it, it describes in, in the film, he was an illegitimate child. For the time that he was born, his, you know, his um, existence would have been one of total shame. So he would have felt the need to prove himself beyond all others, which is another key to his character, which is sort of suggested in the film. Yeah. Let's talk about the match cut. Mm. Anywhere within 300 miles of Medina, there are Hashemite Bedouins. They can cross 60 miles of desert in a day. Oh, thanks, Dryden. This is going to be fun. Lawrence, 
Only two kinds of creature get fun in the desert. Bedouins and gods, and you're neither. Take it from me. For ordinary men, it's a burning, fiery furnace. No, Dryden. It's going to be fun. It is recognized that you have a funny sense of fun. This the greatest edit that you've seen in a film. It's the most beautiful. Mm. Certainly, it's, it's you know when we think of great edits like this, you know we think of two thousand and one. Yeah, the the, the bone in the spaceship. Yeah. Yes, yes, but I think this one has got an elegance to it and a beauty to it, which perhaps trumps two thousand and one. Mm. You know, because that that sunrise is just gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Mm. You know, and the way the you know, and the way that you can still hear. The, him blowing up the match, even as we've already, you know, we've gone into the next shot. I, I don't know how to describe it. I haven't the words described. I don't think mm. there are words to describe it. I'm letting, you know, I'm letting it down at the moment. This is where being a podcast, being an audio medium, we let ourselves down because yeah, this scene <laughs> yeah. is certainly up there as one of the greatest, one of the great yes. edits. It's Leeds' one of the best edit. With this, um, doing a podcast like this, and especially on a film like Lawrence Arabia, is you don't want to repeat yourself. But we're going to be saying repeatedly throughout this podcast how beautiful the shot is mm. and it, how it, beautiful is this shot and how beautiful you know are we going to be saying it again and again because each shot could be taken by itself and framed and put mm. on somebody's wall and it would be beautiful yes it, it's certainly lean's best edit and it was his favorite edit it has immense power one obviously the actual cut itself uh, apparently it was a dissolve in the script so it was scripted and then lean's uh, sort of girlfriend at the time suggested because obviously we're in the early 60s that he go and see some films from the French New Wave which would include jump cuts and things and he watched them and was just enlivened by them and then came up with the idea for this cut but it's it's the cut which is extraordinary but then it's also the timing of the rising sun and Morris Jarre's music that sort of that sort of ding 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 it's, it's the music just, yeah. just building and swelling yeah. isn't it and that sense that something is going to happen and then that explosion of music and that incredible uh, vista as we see the the huge sand dunes, which are, you know, we, we gain a sense of how big they are because then we see those tiny little camels appear on, on the rim of them. So it's, the cut is extraordinary. That that brief sequence of shots is mouth-watering. It, it is a jaw-dropper. And, you know, the procession of scenes that then follow with... Lawrence and his guide riding through these jaw-dropping scenes, these desert locales, 
as good as anything else in this film. There are examples of, of Freddie Young's just astonishing camera work on the film. Like you said, Steve, you can take any frame from this film and you can just freeze it. You could print it off. You could put it on a canvas. You could put it on a wall. It, it just looked incredible. Yes, exactly, exactly. And um, going back to what Steve said earlier about, maybe it was you, uh, Sky, about how it's a film which couldn't be made any earlier because it has to have a certain 60s sensibility. And that influence of the French New Wave is a perfect example of that. Would they have done a jump cut like that 10 years previous? And I also think it's a, te- it's a technical thing because as, as good as this film could have been, you know, if it was made by Powell and Pressburger, it would have been made in academy ratio. It wouldn't have been made in you know two point two to one, you know widescreen on on Panavision sixty five cameras, which this film with the you know the locations that you're, you're putting up there on the big screen, it needs that widescreen aspect ratio. It needs cameras that can give you that much color and detail. It wouldn't look the same in you know one point three seven to one black and white or any other film format than the one that we got because to this day and i haven't seen this film in 4k but dave eves has and he said it looks just remarkable it looks like a film much like the you know the not too long ago restoration of ben hur film which was made you know three years before this that high def restoration of that film just looks like it was shot yesterday and yeah i I just think it was that it was the technology was right at the time for this film to look as good as it needed to look Mm. from a visual standpoint it it hasn't aged a day i think it's as it's as staggering today i think as it would have been for audiences at the time and in in some ways more because you know i mean you you guys talk about this on your podcast but there is nothing sort of faked really i mean there might be the odd you know set as opposed to a real location i think one of the shots of the sun is faked but i mean we're not awash with cgi this is all real and it is staggering absolutely staggering yeah the one shot of the sun during the um sun's anvil sequence was a a painting wasn't it because Mm. because it was some sort of um composite It, it again none of it pulls you out of the film no, 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 no. no. you don't you notice know? it. I didn't even notice. I no. didn't even know until I was doing my research. Mm. Well, we, we've had there certainly one of the greatest edits in a film, mm. and then next we have one of maybe the greatest character introductions in all of cinema: the mm. mirage scene entrance of Sheriff Ali, played by Omar Sharif. What a scene! And again, little tricks that they put in, which I wasn't aware of until I, you know, the the, the first time I saw this film on on, on DVD, where we had special features, which gave you an insight into the making of it. They optically painted in a, a line of camel tracks or, or, or some sort of disturbance in the sand which leaded or led from the well all the way to the horizon just to draw mm. the viewer's eye to the speck that would become Sheriff Ali. Mm. It was also filmed on a special lens made by Panavision, 482mm lens. Wow. And it was used once for that shot and it's never been used since. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, because they... Know. They did have a shot where they literally filmed Omar Sharif disappear, you know, from a, a complete vanishing point, coming he- into a head and shoulders uh, close up. And Lean said he he wished that he'd cut it less. He wished that it had gone longer. That in an early cut he'd left more of that and cut away from it less and allowed it to play longer and that it was stronger but that he'd lost his nerve and that's one of the things about lean he often said you know you've got to be bold you've got to hold your nerve with certain shots and this one he felt like he could have done it better he felt it should have it should have gone on longer but you know he said to john box the production designer that it was the best piece of production design he would ever do because as you say he painted a line all the way 
across the sand to the horizon and they arranged sort of pebbles to create certain shapes to, to focus the eye. And, you know, it's also, you know, a masterpiece of sound design. You can hear the, the padding of the camel just getting louder and louder and louder as it comes closer. It's, it's an incredible masterpiece of, you know, the sort of ratcheting up of tension. It's, it's brilliant. And, and I think the thing that makes the scene work is the fact that like Lawrence, he's kind of um, laying down on this little mound just mm-hmm. away from the well. And it's the fact that his guide, Taffa, sees this speck on the horizon just mm-hmm. before we do and just before Lawrence does. That's the thing yeah. that works. And, and he then, drops his water, doesn't he? he yeah. That, that's, yeah, that's such a brilliant thing. It's as if yeah. he's... It's, it, it, yes, an audio cue for us first, isn't it, before mm-hmm. we see anything. Yeah, yeah. As if he's shocked and he's dropped his water out of fright. It's a really, really you know, nice way of sort of di- dividing up the scene. And Lawrence is singing, or is rather whistling, The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo, which is the song he sings later. So it's a very nice foreshadowing of, of a moment to come and, you know, suggests that he's very comfortable in the desert and feels as if he's won the lottery by being there and then all of a sudden they're faced with this dangerous casual very sort of threatening stranger approaching on camelback it's very very clever i think that's um, key to the character as well because he's there and he has got this idealized romantic view mm. of um of the people of the arabs there and all of a sudden he's confronted with the reality of tribe versus tribe yeah and, you know, when he emerges from the horizon and, you know, comes towards us, he then kills Taphus. And, and as much as Lawrence is angered at Ali for killing Taphus and pretty much calls him a murderer, it was only when Taphus drew his gun, the gun that Lawrence had given him previously, only then did Ali shoot him. Yeah, I, I think of it as sort of Clint Eastwood stuff. It's so cool the way it's done, this man casually approaching. And then Lawrence says something like, uh, who is he? After a moment's pause, I always think Tafas realises who he is or realises that this man is dangerous, which makes him run for his gun. And then he gets shot down in the most casual, cold-blooded way. Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound very callous. But obviously, it's not real, but it is as cool a kill as you'll ever see on film, yeah. the way it's actually the way it's actually handled. And, and you're right. I mean, he did go for his gun first, which um, sort of excuses, in a way, the um, the murderousness of Sharif Ali, although, of course, Sharif Ali then refers to Tafas as, you know, that as, a, as an object, as something disgusting. And he asks if the gun that's dropped on the ground is Lawrence's or or does it belong to Tafas? And because it belongs to Tafas, he's willing to take it. He'll steal from this man. Yeah. But then when he wants to take a drink, uh, whose cup is it? If it's Tafas's, he's not going to drink from it because he won't share a cup with that that creature. Mm. But he will share a cup with Lawrence. And it is quite shocking because up to that point, you know, Tafas is quite likable. He's got this sort of charming, chuckling, high-pitched laugh. And he's, you know, he's taught Lawrence how to ride a camel quickly. And and their relationship is very similar to the relationship that Lawrence later has with Ali, which is that Tafas doesn't take him seriously and gives him very hard look. And as their relationship wears on, they become friends. It has a very similar but much shorter trajectory. So it is, it is quite shocking, actually, the way it's done. Yeah, and Lawrence then refuses to accept Ali's offer of assistance in guiding him mm. to Prince Faisal. He makes his own way eventually, meeting up with Colonel Brighton, played by Anthony Quayle. Mm. And as they then make their way to Prince Faisal's encampment, it's being attacked by planes, planes from you know, the, 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 the Turkish army. And it's then that we meet Prince Faisal, played by Alec Guinness. Mm-hmm. Viewed from a 2022 perspective, it's going to be seen as a, a white actor playing an Arab character. But this isn't 2022, this is 1962. And this is 
at the time, one of the greatest working actors. What do you think of Alec Guinness's performance in this film? Well, shall I go first? I, I mean, Alec Guinness is probably my favourite actor ever. And my feeling about this is, is yes, from the standpoint of 2022, it's, it's going to make people feel uncomfortable. It, it makes me feel uncomfortable, but because I'm aware that other people will be uncomfortable. I think you have to accept that it was made a long time ago. I think one key point is that there's nothing disrespectful about the performance. Not in the slightest. No, it's done with dignity. It's done with respect. It's a very pure and beautiful piece of acting. So I mean, He's I certainly the most regal and dignified character in the whole film. He, he is. He I, is. I, I'd say alongside Harley. Yes. No, I, I, I agree with that. The, the other thing to say is that one of the things about Alec Guinness that I love the most and I think the thing that makes him perhaps the most versatile actor that ever for me that ever stepped in front of the film camera is that he could play anything at all and make you believe it and I think if you were to say you know if we were to go back in a time machine and say Alec you can't play a Jewish man in great uh, in Oliver Twist you know you can't play an Indian in Passage to India you can't play you know, this this uh, Arab uh, prince in, in Lawrence of Arabia, fr- frankly, you diminish the sort of treasures of cinema in the sense that, you know, his brilliance was that he could convincingly do anything. And if the film was made now and we were to say, we're going to have a white actor playing this role, I would say, no, 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 please don't do that. But if someone was to say to me, you know, we could go back in time and stop Alec Guinness doing this, I would also say, please don't do that because this is the most versatile actor that ever lived don't take away his opportunities to utilize his talent. So that's a, a, a non-answer in a way. Um, but um, I think it's a perfect answer. Yeah. I think because when we look back, we can judge a performance, not only by um, how good it is, but in this case, how respectful it is. Mm. And there's nothing in there, I think, that you could sit, um, point at and say, and there's, there's no caricature, no. there's no stereotypes, nothing. He is mm. a complete character, and mm. that is what's important with these uh, with situations like this. And I know you, you, I agree 100%. If it was being cast today, you would say, you know, when when they were casting Gods of Egypt, whoever thought of putting people like Christian Bale was knit in there, you know, and things like that into an mm. Egyptian movie, it, it's it's silly today. We don't need to do it today, and we sh- and we should know better today. However, back in the 60s, you know, there's a different sensibility. And they did it in a way which was, as you said, completely respectful of the character and of the culture. Yeah, and ultimately, what are these men and women doing, which have been, you know, doing this same job since the dawn of film? They're acting. It's make believe. Yeah. They're playing characters who are not the people they are. And and you know that can apply to people of different races, religions, people of totally different backgrounds. It it, it is acting, and mm. I, I think. Yeah. As, as he is in so many other films, I think Alec Guinness is absolutely tremendous in this film. And if it was mm. a case of, you know, like, for example, going back right to the beginning of um, Birth of a Nation, where you had all the actors blacking up and acting, you know, stupid and characters, chewers and, and being, you know, it's a very racist portrayal, you'd understand completely. Like Stephen said, this is a completely respectful portrayal. Yeah, yeah. And it, this, this is not, you know, this is not Christopher Leap in the Fu Manchu films. No, no. The intention was yes, respectful. absolutely. And it's a brilliant performance. I yes. mean, that's undoubtable. He's absolutely magnificent in the role. And it's a very emotional performance because there's so many times in this film that he looks like he's on the border of, of, of breaking down and, and mm. crying because he's getting so emotional about the fact that mm. his men are getting killed on a daily basis and even worse, the ones who are injured. Instead of leaving them for the Turks to God knows what to, they, he ends up having to have his own men killed. 
Mm. Well, T.E. T. Lawrence, you know, as I said, he's a very complicated character and he seems to know how to how to find people's weak spots to get them to do what he wants or to get what he wants. And with the Prince Faisal character, it's saying to him that you don't want to be a part of the British army. You know, the, the Bedouins are, it's almost like they're sailors of the desert. You know, they, they, they go where they want, they strike where they want, just like the British Navy do on the sea. And when he's saying all that stuff to Faisal, Alec Guinness's eyes just suddenly come alight and they're filled with hope and emotion. It's an, an incredible, powerful piece of reactive acting, which is, as I think a lot of people would say, reactive acting is the best, the, the best and most difficult kind of acting to do. And it's one of the best examples of reactive acting you'll ever see. Certainly. So then they move the camp 50 miles south out of the range of the, the, the Turkish plains. And then Brighton and Lawrence discuss this military strategy with Faisal and Lawrence shows that his aims here, they aren't born out of any British colonial patriotism, but they're born out of what seems to be a genuine desire to help Faisal and his people. Again, could come from the fact that he is not a, he's not an actual soldier. He's not a, you know, an officer of the British army as such. This is a position he's kind of been gifted. And then Faisal tells Lawrence that his, his people need a miracle. And then Lawrence ponders this and leaves. And as you said, Stephen, he, he he walks the desert till the next day, mm. pondering as to what he should do next. And he then realises that crossing the Nefru Desert to get to Aqaba is the way to go, as the guns in Aqaba are always facing the sea, because that's where the threat is, is thought of any rational army will come from the sea, because no one would dare approach them from the landward side. And he tells Ali of his plan, and, and Ali tells him he, that he's mad. And then it's at this point we have... So this, this is my favourite line in the film, where Lawrence says, do we rest here? And Ali says, there is no rest now short of water, Lawrence, the other side of that. And how much of that is there? I'm not sure, but however much it must be crossed before tomorrow's sun gets up. This is the sun's anvil. That's a fantastic line. It's that description of this flat, lifeless, desolate part of the desert. It, it's the mm. sun's anvil. It's what the sun just beats down on constantly. And it it's that description. That description of a, of a piece of landscape is just phenomenal writing. Definitely my, my, my favourite little exchange in the film. Yeah. I mean, there are some great lines in the movie. The, that whole sequence when they cross the Nefu Desert is really extraordinary. And I, I like the way that Jar's music, you know, conveys sort of insanity and ponderousness and hope and desperation. You know, all these little bits of music that... that that pull it together and my note to myself when I was watching that sequence is it's like a sort of dick measuring competition between <laughs> Ali and Lawrence because th there's a moment where Lawrence almost passes out and he Ali hits him with his stick and he gives him this hard smile and says you were drifting you were drifting and then throughout the whole rest of the sequence, he's just staring at him with that horrible smile on his face as if he's waiting for him to die. He's hoping that this man who has come up with this insane plan, who thinks of himself as better than the Bedouin, he's hoping that he turns out to be a fake. Then finally, when they when they get to the camp and they make they pitch camp for the night and and uh, Ali says something like, um, we've got, uh, we'll just travel during the night. Uh, we'll take three hours rest during the day. And um, Lawrence says, fine, we'll set off now. And he says, no, we rest. And, uh, and Lawrence, who's sort of shaving himself, says, well, I'll wake you. 
and the, the whole sequence kind of progresses like that. And then finally, when that line comes about the sun's anvil, that's almost like Sheriff Arley's sort of mic drop to, to Lawrence. And at that point, Lawrence looks quite shaken by what they're going to do. So that whole sequence is a sort of, you know, lunge and parry with their relationship. They haven't quite found out who they are yet. And certainly Lawrence hasn't proven himself the sort of the, the messiah that he believes himself to be and is soon to become. Yeah. Well, he doesn't uh, wake himself, does he? Because he, he, he's still asleep when everybody else wakes up the next morning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's that's the next section, isn't it? That he, it's actually Ali that wakes him up. Um, yeah, so it's this constant backwards and forwards, which I, I really love. And then it's the scenes of them crossing the Nefu that mm. one of those parts of the film that just makes man look so insignificant mm. in, in terms of scale to the rest of the world, the world in which we have it, and the fact that so many areas of it are just vast and basically places where we are not meant to inhabit. Mm. And then following that, when Lawrence realises the gas has been left behind and he turns back across the Nefu to save him and, and you know, here we have some of, and again, I, I keep running out of suitable expletives that describe how incredible some of these shots are. But some of these are just the most remarkable shots in the film. And that shot with, with Gassim walking into frame as the sun breaks over the horizon. That took three days to find that perfect location where the sun would break over a completely flat horizon in just the right place. That's so gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. And in reality, Lawrence did indeed go back to save a man, but unlike in the film, where he has this heated exchange with Ali, where Ali tries to tell him, no, he's dead, you've got to leave him. In real life, he just went back without telling anyone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, obviously, it's hugely dramatised. There's a very revealing character moment there as well, where he, he wants to go and Ali start, tries to stop him and says, you know, it is written that Gassim is dead, is, you know, and he says, you know, nothing is written. I, you know, I can write it up here. And one of the aspects of the real T.E. Lawrence and also the character in the movie is that desire to impose your will on events, you know, that, that he can do whatever he wants he can be whatever he wants he he's all the way through the movie he's saying i i i i will give them damascus you know i can do this you know it is written up here uh, i can save him i can go back even if you can't i can uh and then i think really this is the beginning of his messiah sort of complex as it were because he he rescues gassim and then he gets his own shot a bit like the appearance of sheriff ali you see him at a distance on the horizon, a little wobbly spot. And, and the music just suddenly, well, it starts off as this kind of mystical version of the Lawrence theme, and then it just crashes into this kind of full rapture. And I can't remember whether it's Dowd or Farage, but one of his little sort of minions rides up to him on a, on a camel, and then, you know, the whole encampment surround them. And, uh, you know, Sheriff Ali approaches, and he's gone from disliking him and mistrusting him and wanting him to fail to looking at him as if he's the second coming of Christ. And, and at that point, you know, Lawrence has proven who he is and proven what he can do. And at, from that point on, they all see him through completely different eyes. Yeah, because yeah, it, it's this rescue of Gassim, isn't it, against near impossible mm. odds. This, you know, aside from being one of the most uplifted moments in the film. And, and mm. when Ali hands him the flask of water and he sends it in this, mm. says in this gravelly voice, and it's the perfect bookend to what you just said, Stephen, mm. nothing is written. <laughs> kind of proven his point. He certainly, he, of course, he's got a messiah complex. That's one of the yeah. the, the key traits of this guy and, and the, the, mm. the sheer balls and arrogance of, of him. But going back a little bit, the, the, this, this this film conveys a sense of uh, size and scale unlike any other film I've seen. But another thing, 
it conveys is the sense of heat. You've got that shot of mm. Gassim walking from frame left to right across the Nefud with like a shimmer mm. on the ground that just makes him look like an ant baking on a hot plate. <laughs> and there's so many, and there's also a, a, a similar shot with a procession of the camels, you know, when they're initially crossing the Nefud, and you can just see the, the heat shimmer and and, mm. and the camels, and they're just so small in comparison to everything else in the frame, and it just mm. gives this sensation of just complete and utter unrelenting baking heat, which, you know, wasn't too far from the conditions they were actually filming in. And then after he's rescued him, as, as he sleeps later that night, Ali mm. burns Lawrence's uniform, and then the mm. next day he's given these white robes of the same kind that the Arab, uh, you know, as, as the Arab people with whom he's travelling with. Mm. And then you've got that scene with him; he's almost dancing around, isn't he, joyously in this new garb, using this knife he's been given as a mirror. Mm. In one of the, you know, the most every time you see a series of like stills from the film, you know, if you go on IMDb or anything like that, this shot of him holding the knife in the robes is always one of them and that was totally improvised as well yeah yes yes yeah. yes and then that scene is cut short by the arrival of anthony quinn as auda mm. abutai my favorite character of the film he's ferocious I yeah ferocious I, I love anthony quinn in this film he is just mm. absolutely phenomenal and mm. when they first meet as well um you've got that great scene because his son comes down as well and his son has got a gun and um, he asks his son you know uh, what clothes are this and he says, uh, it's Benji, Benji Way, you said, Sharif. And, uh, and then he points at um, Lawrence and says, uh, and who is he? And he says, he's an Englishman. And you can <laughs> see Lawrence's face just like fall because he's wrapping himself up in this, this cloak of, you know, of being an Arab. Of that. Mm-hmm. Again, this um, uh, the romanticism of it all. Mm-hmm. And well, then he he's being pointed he's... out quite, you know, quite frankly that he's not. He believes he's been reborn, doesn't he? I mean, there's this wonderful motif uh, which is repeated once more in the film, which is basically after he's returned with Gassim, he has a little sort of conflab with Ali and then he gets basically tucked into bed by... Sharif Ali and then Ali as you say burns all of his clothes and he's given his robes and it's like he's been reborn he's become a different person and then you get that famous scene in the desert which was improvised as you say and and it is he's suddenly become you know sort of giddy as a schoolgirl. you know he's uh, wearing his new clothes and he's all excited and he thinks he's finally become the thing he wanted to become and then when the the, the son of Auda sees him and says he's an Englishman he's uh, you know he's completely crestfallen and then there's this this friction, isn't it, between Auda and, and Ali, given the fact that they're from different tribes. But that's a great exchange, that is. Yeah, I, I that's one of the highlights of the film. That is, was it? Um, am I one of your father's bastards? And um, <laughs> Auda says, no, there's no there's no resemblance. You know, and that, there's the tension there, and there's the humour there. You know, um, when Auda says, you know, I knew your father. And Ali says, did you know your own? Did you know your own? Yeah, it's brilliant. Isn't it? It's like, for, mm. given the fact that this is a three hour and 42 minute film and so much of it is scenes without dialogue, it's got such a, I don't know, just a dense and incredible script. And it's there in there in the uh, costumes and in the performances as well, because you've got Sharif Ali is, is very sort of dapper in this black robe, very, you know, erect, doesn't really move, very calm. And you've got Anthony Quinn as Auda Abu Tai, who's wearing this sort of bandit costume with like, you know, a gun belt and knives and different layers and different colours, just sort of stalking around him. It's, uh, a, you know, a brilliant, you know, contrast. And then when T.E. Lawrence sort of chimes in, it's like he's an alien from another world world you know this savage Auda Abu Tai just never quite gets to grips with who this this sort of fey Englishman in white robes with gentlemanly manners he never quite and he looks sort of nonplussed all the time whenever he's talking to Lawrence he just doesn't understand him 
I carry 23 great wounds, all got in battle. 75 men have I killed with my own hands in battle. I scatter, I burn my enemies' tents. I take away their flocks and herds. The Turks pay me a golden treasure, yet I am poor because I am a river to my people. And then, you know, when they, you know, we realized that Auda is, is someone who's going to help them. And, you know, we, we've had that great scene in Auda's tent where we learn, you know, about the fact that, you know, he, he loves his people and he's, you know, he'd be a rich man we're enough for the fact that, you know, he, he's got, you know, such a vast amount of people to look after. I am a river to my people. Mm. River to my people. That's, yeah. that's, that might be my favourite line in the movie. It actually makes me laugh whenever he says it. It's just the, the, the ferocity with which he delivers it is just great. And then you've got the night before the raid on Akaba, there's been a dispute and, and a man's been killed. And then it's the shooting of Gassim, mm. something which Lawrence volunteers to do until he realises who it is. It's, this, this is. this marks one of several turning points in the film for Lawrence. As, like you said, Stephen, he has got this idealized version of the Arab people, but what happens with Gassin just shatters that, that vision. And once more, you're made to feel like he feels like he doesn't belong. Mm. Yeah, at the same time, though, he understands a lot about the cultures because in the tent the night before, when he's talking to Auda, he knows how to manipulate this man, and he does very, very, um, you know, very casually, very, you know, you know the, what he says about how to he um, gets out to join them by saying, you know, you're, you're not going to do it because of money, you're going to do it because it's your pleasure. Yeah. He knows how to manipulate people, and he thinks that the best way when there's this conflict and this this murder, he thinks he knows the the best way. In some, he's like, he's like Solomon. I, you know, the, he knows the wise way of uh, avoiding conflict, mm-hmm. uh, and yet all of a sudden it becomes very personal. Yeah. You know, it's okay to kill an unknown somebody he doesn't know this uh, this Arab, you know, that he's never met before. But all of a sudden, he risked his life to save this man, mm-hmm. and now he's going to take it. And it's it, it's quite poetic, and it's pointed out, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the scene that it is it's written in this. You know, it, again, it's this um, this religious um, undercurrent that comes through uh, mm-hmm. the culture. You know, I mean. This is something that's written. You know, you give him life, you're going to take his life away from him. Mm. And it's, I think it's quite clear in the way he's shot because you don't see him being shot. You just see Lawrence holding the gun and firing it. But the fact that he fires all of the bullets in that gun and the fact that he's moving the gun around tells you that Gassin isn't killed by the first bullet and he's probably scrambling around on the floor. Mm. It's so dramatic, the way it's shot as well, the way that there's a sort of, um, I guess, a medium close-up of the him snapping the gun closed, having checked that there's bullets. And then the camera pans as he moves the gun to the man bent over. And then the people around the man scatter because there's going to be gunfire. And then the man uh, straightens up and it's gassing. It's And then you get the shot, the close-up shot of Lawrence's face sort of registering uh, surprise and horror. It's, again, a brilliant sequence of shots. Really, really dramatic. And as you say, the... The, you know the shooting all around to to kill him i mean lean said that he was a restraining hand on the film that it was always a balance between being explicit and restraining himself and it that's a perfect example of a director restraining himself and yet using that to create a much more memorable scene than, than if you'd just seen somebody riddled with bullet holes yeah and he also humanizes uh, lawrence at that scene as well mm. because you see the conflict in his eyes Mm. And it is shaking hands. Yes, yes. And and there's a moment after that which I, I really like where he throws the gun away 
and all of the they, uh, scramble, yeah. they scramble and he's become a religious figure and it's become a religious artifact and it made me think of life of brian you know where they they pick up brian's shoes and start saying the shoe the shoe it's the same <laughs> sort of thing this gun has suddenly become a religious artifact and i mean lean was famous for brilliant transitions and there's a great transition here, which is that there's a sound of a bell ringing while this is happening. And so obviously that signals that this is a psychological moment of importance for Lawrence, that he's, you know, this is a kind of alarm bell for him. He's realizing that maybe this is actually not a good thing that he's doing. Maybe he's becoming worried about who he is. And then that transition becomes a sound bridge, I think, into the raid on uh, Akbar is yeah. very, very clever. And that, that raid on Akbar the following day, and one of my favourite anecdotes about you know the real life T. E. Lawrence is the, on the in the actual attack. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Yeah, as, as he was charging in on his camel, shooting with his pistol, he shot his own camel in the back of the head and <laughs> I killed didn't know it. That. That's great. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, so stupid. I, 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 so I can cool. understand why they didn't include that. <laughs> yeah. And then you know, once they've, they've taken Akbar. One of the greatest shots in the film has oh, to yeah. be the one of Lawrence on his camel walking on the short sunset. Mm, yeah. You know, for a film where we've seen so little water, where water's just been this sort of, you know, rare commodity. You know, we, it, it, it's like a weird disparity. In fact, you've got the desert; it just stops, and then you've got the sea. And mm. It's just such a beautiful shot. Mm. But we must talk about the actual taking of Akbar itself. I mean, there's that there's that long shot that goes on for ages of all the horses and camels just yeah. riding in. And, and again, I think it was his cinematographer, Freddie Young, you know, said, are you sure we don't need a cut here? And Lean said, no, we're going to be bold. We're going to yeah. be bold and we're going to hold this shot. And it works an absolute treat. But interestingly, that is the moment where we go from Jordan to Spain. So yeah. we're now in Spain. And I, I do, although it's a staggering shot, I do think you can see the difference in landscape. Yeah, you can see the fact that there's greenery and, mm. and you know, the, the remnants of grass and stuff that just isn't mm. this completely arid, lifeless desert. Yes, yeah. It, it doesn't, having, it, it didn't bother me before, but I'd, I'd always been aware of the fact that the film suddenly lacks a certain majesty. And it's not to do with the cinematography. It's nothing to do with that. It's the landscape. And it's always bothered me. And having sort of watched the film closely several times, I, I'm much more aware of it than I was before. And I have to say, it's 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 slightly, it slightly distracts me now, actually, that the, yeah. the, the difference is, but, but I wouldn't have noticed it as a, as a casual, as a casual viewer. It's just now that I'm much more aware of it. It's around that scene as well, isn't it? When we have the only women in the film, mm. um, because there's a group of women um, on the side watching as they mm. march in on, and they mm. leave in the camp, and they're going to attack Akiba, yes. and the women are uh, doing a, some kind of ritual scream in the side. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the only time women actually have any voice in the whole film. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And then when they get it, obviously Auda is very dismayed at the fact that the promised treasures are not there. Then Lawrence makes the decision that he's going to go to Cairo and inform of the fact that they've taken Akbar himself. And on his way west to Cairo with the, the two young lads that he's befriended, Daud and Farage, they encounter quicksand and Daud is pulled under and dies. Mm. And then when Lawrence gets to this, the Suez Canal and the man shouting, who are you? Across mm. to him. That was David Lean's voice dubbing yes. the restored footage yeah. for which the original audio had been lost. 
Mm. So it's kind of like a cool little Hitchcock cameo, but one that kind of came about uh, years later when they were restoring the film. Mm. And we get That's... the bell ringing again, don't we? Yeah. Because there's the, it's the same motif again, that bell ringing. Yeah. And it's again, Lawrence asking himself the question, who am I? And that leads to him going to the sort of, um, you know, military headquarters and behaving as if he was an Arab and disliking the, you know, the British army and basically telling them, despite their sort of racism, that they they have to give, you know, his sort of manservant a farage. They, they have to give him a, a, a bed. And so he's made this decision at that moment that I'm going to be an Arab, which he yeah. reneges on quite quickly. Going back a little bit, mm. um, Sky, you mentioned earlier about how you've got all this vast desert and then it's the sea. Before mm. we get to that scene of, you know, who are you? You've got that fantastic shot when they're in the rundown building and you've just got the desert in front and you just see a boat passing. Mm. Oh, yes. And, yeah. yeah and, and I think that Steven Spielberg said that this is his favourite film, and that's got to have influenced that scene. The Codapaxi. Close encounters. Yeah. yeah. The Codapaxi when they find yeah. it in the desert. My God, I've never made that connection, but it is. It, it's it's a ship being completely out of place somewhere where it shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. It's, wow. a, it's a fantastic shot. Oh, shot. yeah. That, that is my favourite shot in Close Encounters, is that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that incredible shot, which was done with a miniature. And yeah, I've never made that connection until now. Wow, brilliant. There are moments where, when I'm watching Lawrence of Arabia that I almost think I'm watching Temple of Doom as well. That, that there's, I, I make that connection. I think it's something to do with Maurice Jarre's music. and. Well, John Williams' Temple of Doom score mm. is, I would say, the most romantic of, of all mm. the scores he did for the Indiana Jones films because it's got its own kind of separate theme, which is unique to that film, you know? yes, yeah. which, which isn't I, in any of the others. No, it's just a moment where, where Lawrence is awkwardly riding on the back of a camel and there's something about the, the musical motifs that that bring back a sense memory of Temple of Doom, which I can't sort of match precisely, but it just for some reason it always comes to the back of my mind when I'm watching it. Yeah. So then when Lawrence gets back to HQ, he's you know, he's he's lost Dowd. He you know, he's a shattered man. Mm. And Brighton informs him that General Murray is gone and has been replaced by General Allenby, played by the great Jack Hawkins. This, again, this is one of the questions I've always had about him, which maybe you guys can answer. Why do you think Lawrence told Allenby that he enjoyed killing Gassin because going back to that scene and how he reacted afterwards, it certainly doesn't look to me like he enjoyed anything about it. But mm. why did he then later tell Allenby that he enjoyed it and clearly maybe, hates himself for enjoying it? Maybe he was horrified that he enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I, I wonder. That's that's my my reading of that. I mean, as you know, as we've sort of said, Lawrence was a masochist. We see later, we'll get onto it, but there's a massacre later, and he's, you know, he's like a sort of addict getting his fix, just blowing people away left, right, and center. And the way the way I view that scene is because Lawrence obviously wants to go home, he wants to give it up, and I, I feel like he's found out something about himself that he's really frightened of, and he he wants just to to not be that person and wants to go home and wants to you know, hide away from it all. And, and Allenby knows exactly which buttons to press, which is basically praising him. He says, you know, um, he promotes him and then gets Colonel Brighton to say, you know, it doesn't matter what his motives were. It was a brilliant bit of soldiering. He deserves a commendation. And then he gets a, a junior officer to come inside and he says, you know, what did you think of it? He says, bloody marvellous, sir. You know, and uh, and, and I think that's exactly, the, he, he knows exactly which buttons to push. So, just as Lawrence is a master manipulator, he himself is very easy, easily manipulated. But I just think that he has seen something in himself which is very, very frightening, which is that he enjoys killing people, which is I, why. I think that's 
you've just pinpointed something there I hadn't thought of before. Because on the one hand, he's quite self-aware that he knows he's a masochist, he knows his faults, mm. but at the same time, he doesn't know he's being manipulated. Mm, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And, and he is, isn't he? He's been manipulated by Dryden. He's been manipulated by, you know, probably to a much lesser degree, Murray earlier on, and then certainly by Allenby. Yes, mm. and yet, and yet, sometimes he seems to be very self-aware of his faults. Mm. And, and guys, ultimately, other... right, the, the the one that's probably hardest to accept, he probably has been really manipulated by Faisal. Yes. yes. As we find out later in the scenes towards the end of the film, where Faisal kind of his character takes a bit of a different turn. Yeah. So then, the intermission. That comes at the two hour and nineteen minute mark. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a long wait to get there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that, that that's way past halfway through this film. Mm. Yeah. So then when when it restarts, the, the Prince Faisal meets with Jackson Bentley, the, the American news report uh, newspaper reporter played by Arthur Kennedy. And and he says to him, Ah, oh, that line he says, You were looking for a figure who will draw your country towards war. Lawrence is your man. Because that's why Kennedy's there, isn't he? He's he's, he's trying to kind of um, drum up support for you know, World War One back in America. And he also shows how manipulative um, Faisal is, because it's Faisal who who brings them together, isn't it? Yeah, and that's what I mean about Faisal just yeah. being this this really subtle manipulator. And this is something I didn't pick up on on the first several times I watched the film. Oh. Oh, and then we cut to Lawrence blowing the train up. Oh, come on, men. Oh. <laughs> that's just a, a wonderful scene that yeah and yeah. The, the production actually came across the ruins of tracks of one of the actual rail depots blown up by the real life Lawrence in World War One, which is so cool yeah I suppose and it's untouched land and then the train is ransacked and, and Lawrence is shot in the shoulder by one of the Turkish soldiers and as he's clutching this is another one you guys if you can answer this for me as he's clutching his wound he says good Good, good. What is good about getting shot? What is it because he's like you say, Stephen? He's a bit of a masochist, mm. or is it something? The fact that oh, I, I I'm not a god. I can bleed. I am just flesh and blood. Yes, but in the next scene, he confronts the the shooter, and he just stands there as if to yeah. say, "You can't shoot me." Well, in yeah. fact, I think he says it to Kennedy. I think mm. he actually says it. I mean, they, you know, nobody can shoot me without um, a golden gun or something. Yeah, because yeah. um, you know, his his death will be on his own terms. Which you mm. know, if you look yeah. later on as to how he died, is far from the truth. So I'd maybe miss- he just wanted to feel something, and the and the pain was something that um, was very real to him. Yeah, mm. and you know, like you say, he then lets up that soldier take shots at him before Auda comes in and kills him with a sword. seen a man killed with a sword before. Why don't you take a picture? Wish I had. I mean, there's another key messianic moment there, isn't there, as well, where he's striding across the top of the train. At first you see his shadow. It's a, it's, it's incredible. And then, oh, isn't it? and then you see him, you know, sort of haloed by the sun. And I mean, there's an earlier scene where uh, and this is just how clever the you know the screenplay is, how detailed it is. There's a scene very early in the movie. Um, in fact, it's the scene that directly precedes that incredible cut with the match, 
where uh, Dry, you know, he uh, Lawrence says to Dryden, "This is going to be fun." And uh, Dryden says, only two kinds of creatures have fun in the desert, Bedouins and gods, and you're neither. And he says, it will be fun. And they've got shots, uh, not shots, rather pictures of like sun gods behind him. And there's a sort of a kind of cat god behind him. And, and this was all staged deliberately. And Lean said he wished he'd made it much more explicit. But basically, we've gone from, you know, only gods have fun in the desert to to Lawrence haloed by the sun on the top of a train on the top of the world. And now he's become the sun god. You know, that's a deliberate sort of connection between the two. Uh, and so it's another moment uh, that sort of uh, further elevates his uh, his messiah complex. Yeah, and I think this is the high point for him as a character in the film before, mm. you know, events take a bit of a dark turn. They do. Yeah, don't they just? <laughs> so before we get to that, right, we then see Lawrence Lauder's men raiding Turkish trains along with the help of, of Colonel Brighton. And as they're setting the charges for another raid, Farage is, is horribly wounded by this detonator which he's put into his, his belt. And then with the Turks approaching, Lawrence is once more forced to shoot someone uh, that he cares for. Obviously, someone that in this case he cares for much more than he did Gassin. But, you know, again, th- this is something else that, that helps kind of pull his character back down from being this kind of self imposed god. And, and then Lawrence makes a decision to go to Dira, where he, well, he, he's bested and, and it's strongly implied that he's violated by mm. this. Turkish Bay, mm. played by Jose Ferrer. Yeah. That's another great performance, isn't it? You know, another mm. great. Yeah. He, he is so got so much menace, you know, and just the way, and it's almost yeah. homoerotic the way that he touches oh, his skin 100%. and everything like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that, that persistent coughing into the handkerchief was meant to imply a, a kind of sexual climax in of sorts. Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you could go back slightly before that. I mean, there's the scene where he's deciding to go to Dura, and he says, "Men." who will walk on water with me. And then when he gets into Dirac, because he's gone there on his own, uh, he deliberately walks across a large puddle and starts laughing. And so in his mind, he's he's walked he's across the water. water isn't he? Yeah, yeah I, I only noticed that after a few viewings, yeah. but it's very, very subtle and very nice. And then he gets waylaid by this sort of lowly, I think, he, well, I think he's a sergeant from the Turkish army who sends Sharif Ali off and then just looks Lawrence up and down and makes this really lascivious movement of his mouth and then just yeah. says, you. And it's very, very very disturbing yeah and then um jose ferreira's the bay has collected all the all basically all these men have clearly been collected as um possibilities for him and he looks them all up and down sternly some a bit longer than others and eventually he gets to lawrence and he also says you and then everybody gets thrown out and they're left alone together so it's very clear what he intends yeah which is very bold for the time yeah 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 you have blue eyes. I say you have blue eyes. Yes, Effendi. Are you Circassian? Yes, Effendi. How old are you? Twenty-seven, Effendi. I, I think. You look older. You have had a lot of experience. It's an interesting face. I am surrounded by cattle. He wouldn't know an interesting face from a sow's belly. I have been in Dara now for three and a half years. If they posted me to the dark side of the moon, I could not be more isolated. 
You haven't the least idea of what I'm talking about, have you? No, Fendi. Have you? No. That would be too lucky. You are a deserter. But from which army? Not that it matters at all. A man cannot be always in uniform. Your skin is very fair. Jose Ferrer has said that of all of his performances in film, and even though he's on screen for, what, four minutes? Yeah. He says that this was his best scene. And he was actually paid more than Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif together. He was, mm. You know, he was paid $25,000 for that scene. Yeah, and it is a really uncomfortable scene, and Jose Ferrer is brilliant. And it it being that kind of, kind of sinister kind of um, homoeroticism... Mm. It reminds me of the snails and oyster scene in Spartacus between Laurence Olivier and Tony Curtis. Mm-hmm. One of the many scenes, or several scenes, sorry, that was restored to the, um, I think that wasn't the fully restored version of that kind of done around about the same time as Lawrence of Arabia was restored around about 1988? Late 80s, I believe, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it does very much remind me of Lawrence Olivier's performance in that film. But I mean, I think this one is even more disturbing because the fact that after this, you know, he's clearly violated in some way, mm. and then then there is just this pretty dramatic change in Lawrence. It, there's there's mm. a loss of that sparkle and magic that he had. Mm. That line that he says to Ali when when Ali says that a man can do whatever he wants, and this is another one that I just can't get my head around what he means. And Lawrence replies, "He can, but he can't want what he wants." And I don't mm. know if I'm ever going to work out what that line means. I think it means that you can't choose what you want. Yeah. If he didn't choose what he wants, yeah, but Mm. the fact that he says he can't want what he wants, I just, it always threw me. But Mm. when he says that, I think he's holding his skin, isn't he? And Mm. he's showing that, you know, he is, despite his airs and the way that he dresses, he is an Englishman. Yeah. Mm. uh, And he's not an Arab. And he's, that's been brutally exposed Mm. by the Bay. And as he's saying that, he is giving his chest a pinch, just very similar to how Jose Pereira actually pinched him. You know, yeah, he says to me, ago. this is me, or I am, you know, yeah. this is my white skin. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, it, it's the, the demolition of his Messiah complex, which I keep banging on about. So he's tried to walk on water and been captured by, you know, the, the Bay's men and violated. And then at the end of the scene, he's thrown out and he lands 
face first in a puddle, which is, you know, this is this the, the subtle moments that the, you know, the, the fabric of this movie is very, very rich. And that's clearly deliberate that he's gone from walking on water to being chucked in a puddle. And then basically he gets turned back into a man. So again, there's a repeat motif where he gets again put back into bed and tucked in again by Sharif Ali. And it's Sharif Ali who then, you know, says, you must eat, you have a body, you must eat. And so it's like he's he's gone from being turned into a messiah by Sharif Ali to being turned back into a man again. And then he starts saying, you know, I want an ordinary job like an ordinary man. You know, you need to carry on with the, the Arab revolt and I'm going to try and just have a normal life and have my slice of normal humanity. Um, and that's I, I, that's what I feel like is his trajectory. You know, he, he goes from, you know, wanting to be someone special to developing this messiah complex and then crashing down because of the bay and becoming a man again. And also, you know, he's torn between being an Englishman, you know, and an Arab. And he never quite figures out which one he's he is. And in fact, by becoming almost an Arab, he loses his ability to be English, but he can never actually be an Arab. So he ends up as nobody. Um, and that, that's what I feel is the sort of trajectory of that character. Yes, when he returns back to the headquarters, he tries to make conversation with the other members of the uh, the military and he can't quite do it. It's, yes. it's awkward. The conversations mm. are awkward. And mm. then he overhears people talking about him. Mm. You know, that he, he doesn't, he just doesn't fit in anyway now, does it? No, he doesn't. And one of the things we sort of slightly skipped over is that when he does try and go back and Allenby essentially sends him back out again, um, you know, when he's when he's uh, come with Farage and, you know, tries to get Farage a, a drink in the officers uh, in the officers mess, he's obviously decided that he wants to be an Arab. Um, but then he's convinced to carry on, you know, with his work as a British officer. There, there's a scene where they've discussed what they're going to do. Uh, and then he walks in amongst all the soldiers thinking that they're going to reject him and they actually all befriend him again. And it's almost as if against his will, he's turned back into an Englishman. So he really you know, is a servant of two masters, but he's he he never really lands on either side of the fence and ends up just totally lost. Yeah, he's a man yeah. without a place, isn't he? He's a man that is never going to find comfort, you know, in, mm. in either of these two roles. Mm. And Prince Prince Fazil um, uh, recognises that because when he sees him a bit later, he says, uh, oh, Lawrence, or oh, is it Major Lawrence? Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, that is the mm. question that Lawrence himself hasn't answered. Yeah, and mm. it's, it's cutting, isn't it? There's venom, subtle venom in the way he says it. Yeah, they have a few exchanges like that. Everything that Faisal says is so measured and, and on mm. performance by Alec Guinness. And I love how when he does go back then to HQ, I love how Lawrence's borrowed uniform just doesn't fit him. And it, it's, <laughs> as, it's as if the uniform of a British officer and the role of a British officer in general just doesn't fit him. Yeah. And then Faisal is, is kind of calmly and subtly, as he does, as is his character, accusing Allenby of lying about this Sykes-Picot Treaty where England and France agreed that after the war they would share the Turkish Empire, including Arabia. Mm. And then when he's pressed to go back and take Damascus, and again, this is more of the arrogance of the man coming out, Lawrence says to Allenby, the best of them won't come for money, they'll come for me. Yes. Again, trying to reaffirm to himself the fact that he is this larger-than-life kind of God character. And there's this brilliance of the sort of duplicitousness of the British, which goes through Dryden and Allenby, which is that there's a scene where, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm going back a little bit, but where Lawrence wants assurances that they have no interests in Arabia, the British have no interests. And Dryden says, it's a difficult question, sir. And then Lawrence, it's almost like he's trying to absolve himself of responsibility, the way he phrases the question. He says... Um, you know, can I tell them 
uh, in your name that the British have no interests in Arabia. And at that point, uh, Allenby says, certainly. And really what that is, is Allenby's quite comfortable with lying. He is lying and he's happy. F- he's, he's happy with that. It's worth it for him just to tell a lie. So they always did have interests. And Lawrence is looking to be absolved of responsibility by being given permission to lie on someone else's behalf. And, and that sort of leads into a future scene, which you're alluding to, where Dryden says something along the lines of, um, you may not have known, but you suspected a man who tells lies like me is merely hiding the truth. But a man who tells half lives has forgotten where he's put it, yeah. which is one of the which is one of the best lines in the movie. Yeah, he's forgotten where he's put the truth. Yeah, oh, yeah. God, it's just cold rains in there. Mm. I mean, in real life, of course, though Lawrence knew he did um, from the very very beginning what the uh, intentions were. Yeah, mm. and I think I know you know you've you've got to make these dramatic changes to a character. And I I think if we knew that, we just wouldn't be along for the writers' match if we knew that Lawrence was complicit in all of this. Mm, yeah. yeah. So then, when Lawrence goes back and him and Auda come across the retreating Turkish army, you know, we we really see how far Lawrence has slipped. Lawrence, not this. Go round, Damascus, Lawrence, Damascus. No prisoners. Lawrence. This was Talal's village. scene is this is Lawrence succumbing to vengeance after what happened to them at the hands of the Turks and at the hands of Jose Ferrer's character. Mm. I also look at it as you know he said earlier on about killing Gassim you know there was something about it I didn't like I enjoyed it and I think that the way I look at it is he recognises the sort of evil inside him and is trying to get away from it. He's trying to leave the army and trying to go home and Allenby just won't let him. And he keeps saying the right things to almost reawaken a demon inside inside T.E. Lawrence. And in that sequence, it's like the demon is fully let out, you know. And, and like I said earlier, it, it's almost as if he's a, a drug addict getting his fix. You know, he's searching around looking for people to murder and you know, with a kind of desperation on his face as he as they massacred this this retreating uh, Turkish army, and uh, you know, Sheriff Ali comes upon him, trying to stop him, and Lawrence has this look on his face like a sort of frightened demon, you know, running away in the in the smoke. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's really really gritty and unpleasant stuff. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at the still of it now. It's it's that one where where Ali is. You can see he's pleading with him. He said, "Not this, Lawrence. Not this." Mm. And and he's got this this look of yeah, like you say, twisted menace and, and, and all of these things going on inside it, but you just know he's he's now succumbing to this hatred that he's got and, and this mm. bloodlust and he has to he has to satisfy it. Mm. It's maniacal, it's uh, embarrassment, it's uh, self hatred, yeah. it's joy, it's everything in that look, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And you know, like I said earlier, Steve, when have we ever talked about as complex a character as this? Exactly. I, I think 
Banan. I, I can't think of any that are more complex in all the films I've seen throughout my life as as T. E. Lawrence in this film. There's just yeah. so many layers to him. Mm-hmm. And, and so for you know, for me, for a film I've seen dozens of times, so many unanswered questions, things which I I'm just like when I when I look at something one way and like lines which I think, what did he mean by that? Then I think mm-hmm. later on, you know, when I see it years down the line, I think of it a different way. Mm. Yeah. It it is like Kane. I mean, he's he's an unresolved question, and you can interpret him all kinds of different ways. And for, in some ways, that's alienating from an audience who just want a sort of fix of enjoyment. But in other ways, it it makes it eminently rewatchable. You know that that it's the visual splendor, but it's also the complexity of the central character. It is just just fascinating to to go back to again and again. Yeah. And as, as soon as that scene is finished, and we we go to the hospital. He swung the the, the the complete opposite way again. Mm. He's he's embarrassed. He can see the results of what what he's done, and mm. you know he, he's all of a sudden he's he's desperate to help these people that mm. only a few moments ago he was desperate to kill. Mm. After they take Damascus, and then we see that these Arab tribes just cannot unite and work together. And then when Auda insults Ali, and Ali lunges for Auda, and then Lawrence intervenes, and he says. That if he answers Alda's insult, there'll be bloodshed. And Ali just snaps back with with this line: "You speak to me of bloodshed," having obviously seen what Lawrence did to the retreating Turkish soldiers. Yes, yeah. There's a line similar to that earlier on as well, where directly after the the massacre, the Jackson Bentley character, who was based on a real man called Lowell Thomas, who essentially made um, Lawrence famous, kind of wants to know what's happened, and and. Uh, Sheriff Ali says, who but they, who but something like a greedy, barbarous people would do this. And that's the exact line that Lawrence said to him, uh, you know, when when Sharif Ali killed near the beginning of the movie. So he really has become very, very disillusioned by who this man is. Yeah. And it's this last act of however many acts you could split, you know, a film as long as Lawrence very bring to it. It's as I think I said to you guys, um, you know, a, a few weeks ago, um, after I think maybe my maybe, maybe my second recent rewatch of this, it's it's this downbeat, almost perfectly anticlimactic ending. I, I love that little. It's almost a speech that Faisal gives, you know, towards the end, where he says, "There's nothing further here for a warrior. We drive bargains, old men's work." Young men make wars, and the virtues of war are the virtues of young men. Courage and hope for the future. Then old men make the peace, and the vices of peace are the vices of old men. Mistrust and caution. It must mm. be so. It's like this endlessly repeating cycle, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's basically telling Lawrence, you know, you, you don't belong here either. Yeah. Mm. Um, and there's a moment uh, just before that, again going back to the hospital scene, where I think it's Alan B slaps him across the face and mistakes him for an Arab. And he falls to the floor. No, it's it's, um, it's a different. It's a different. Um, it's a medical uh, officer. Yes. Medical officer. Sorry. Is it the um, one at the funeral who uh, berates um, the report, the American reporter for what he says? You're close. That 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 guy goes in. Oh no, no, you're absolutely right. It's not the medical officer. You are 100 percent right. Yeah, it is. Yeah, he I think it's the it. same guy, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And then he shakes his hand later. Yes, yeah, because he says, yes. I, I once had the pleasure of uh, shaking his hand. I think that is not the line he says to... Um, That's yeah. right, at the tea, yeah, when he's... Um, yeah. He's, he's like uh, making a cup of tea and then he comes out and he says, may I shake your hand, sir? Mm. Yeah. I, I love the scene where he gets slapped, though, and he's sort of laughing hysterically. And the way, the way I read it, and like, you know, you could... 
interpret this any number of ways, this is just my opinion, is that he's wanted to be an Arab, a real Arab for a really long time. Finally, someone's mistaken him from an Arab and they call him a dirty little wog and knock him over. And he just finds it funny that finally I'm accepted as an Arab and oh, this is what it means to be an Arab, to be beaten by a British soldier and called a you know, called a, a horrible name. Yeah, yeah, so. it's, it's, yeah it's like this horrible kind of realisation that, yeah, this is this is what it's like, isn't it? Mm. Which kind of, you know, really does bring him down a peg or two from this messianic sort of position he's put himself in. Yes. And yeah, it, you know, there is no rapturous, climactic end into the film. No. And I think it's all, the film is all the better for it. I really do. Mm-hmm. Like the last um, scene when he's uh, in that the car driving through the desert mm. and he's been driven all of a sudden. Everything he's tried to achieve in that country is naught because he's there he's dressed in a British uniform, British army uniform, and they are pressing their horns and they're pushing the local Arabs out of the way so they can go first, you know? Yeah. So they can go past it as if to say, you know, it might be your country, but we're we're still in charge. Yeah. And the look of despondency and um, failure on Lawrence's face, then he realizes that you know everything that he's fought for is nothing. Mm. And he's a shadow, isn't he? He's yeah, a shadow he's... at the end. So, so there's this great, you know, the sequence uh, that you were talking about where Faisal and Dryden and Allenby are there and and Brighton there, who we haven't mentioned. Anthony Quayle is there and uh, Lawrence is there. And the beginning, apparently, Lean didn't know how to shoot the scene, and he he said, "I'm stuck, I'm stuck." And then he saw someone walk past the, the shiny wooden table they had, and their reflection was in the table. And he said, "I've got it now." And so the beginning of that scene is actually reflections in the table. And what he said was, "Is it's uh, they've got no substance. These people have no substance, which is why it was shot that way." And then Lawrence walks out, essentially before Faisal can finish thanking him, he's gone. And there's this brilliant moment where he walks through these muslin curtains and you just see his shadow somehow projected onto the curtains as if he's just a shadow of a man. So he's gone from being, you know, this cartographer to being a sort of military person, to being a sort of messianic figure, to being brought back to being a man, to being a kind of demon, and he ends as nothing. He's just a shadow. And then that scene uh, where he's driving away in the Jeep, you just, apart from one brief moment, you just see him through a dirty windscreen. And it again, it is it is as if he's sort of almost faded to nothing. And the man next to him says, you know, oh, sir, you're going home, sir. And the irony, of course, is he he has no, he has home. no home. He has no home, yeah. As he, as he looks back at the procession of camels mm. and, and it kind of just reminds him of, of this magnificent place, this desert that he, he kind of, for a short time, felt so much at home in. And you put mm. a little bit of music, it's just like the main theme, but just played kind of like on a piano. Yeah. And it's just such a downbeat but poetic kind of ending to this film. It is. And the motorbike goes flying by as well, which obviously yeah, which is, is a yeah, intimation Foreshadowing his death, his death mm. which we've already seen at the beginning, which is just everything coming full circle. It's beautiful. Mm. And there we are, guys. That is the end of this three hour and 42 minute film. <laughs> Simple as that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> as I said, you know, the, the shoot took th- two years and three months. What a, a, an ordeal this film must have been to edit. It was, it was edited by Anne V. Coates, who suggested mm. that they follow, I think, as you mentioned, Stephen, the editing style of the French New Wave directors. Mm. I mean, Lean did edit the movie in a large part himself. I mean, he was the most famous editor in England prior to becoming a film director. So I, I think that there was questions about whether Anne Coates deserved full credit. And what she said was that 
basically they were given four months to edit the movie and there was so much of it there was so much footage that it was impossible for one editor to do it so basically lean edited it and she edited it and they edited each other so it was very, he's not he's not credited as editor but he he would have edited a lot of the movie himself and one of the funny things uh and this is a sam spiegel thing is that and this is sam spiegel basically trying to whip uh, david lean to complete the movie is and, and uh, it was a stroke of genius he booked the movie as a royal performance on the 10th of december so they had to have it edited yeah. by the 10th of december or else the queen was going to be very very disappointed so so he actually set him a strict deadline um and and he he didn't really feel like he'd finished the movie and they didn't see the film in its complete form until the day before it was due to be screened for the yeah. for the royal performance that must have been a hell of a uh, schedule though because they finished the filming in september i think mm. and then to get it out and released in december mm. that must have been a hell of a they um, went from nine to midnight seven days oh, a week for yes. four months apparently yeah i think knowing obviously that the, you know the clock was against them the fact that you know there was just going to be this royal performance they actually edited the second half of the film first mm. because i think they thought well if we get a good second half, then at least the film will finish and people will remember the good stuff. And if the <laughs> you know the front half of the film is like an editorial mess, then you know <laughs> we're kind of cutting our losses there. But mm. then upon its release, it was cut down from three hours forty-two. About twenty minutes were removed, and mm. then a further fifteen minutes were removed for the, the television version. Mm. Fortunately, then in the late eighties, um, I think around I think it was nineteen eighty-nine, yeah. it was restored to its full length of three hours 42 but obviously some of the dialogue had to be re-recorded for some of the restored scenes where the original sound had been lost and, and Peter O'Toole actually came back to re-record his own dialogue 25 years later yeah, yeah. and Arthur Kennedy uh, who played uh, Jackson Bentley he had um, moved to uh, Georgia um, in the United States and they couldn't find him so in order to get him to do his lines again they actually phoned up every Kennedy in the phone book until they found him oh brilliant and, and then they went, he went to a um, local television station to then to record his lines again mm. yeah and you, you, Sam Spiegel is, is the one responsible for bringing on composer Marie Jarre now something we haven't talked about guys we've mm. talked about Freddie and cinematography we've talked about Lean's impeccable you know, you know obsessive eye for detail let's talk about that score Mm. Well, originally, uh, Maurice Char was just going to do the um, incidental, the dramatic music, and um, it was going to be somebody else who was going to handle the uh, the main theme, and then Benjamin Britten was going to do all the imperial pomp music. Mm. But um, Britten wanted, I think it was a year or two to write it, so mm. he was out. And then when they listened, to, I, ca I can't actually pronounce the name of the actual composers, Aram Kat. Chat, yeah, I am. I, I do apologize. I do You're apologize. You're a better man than me. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize to everybody out there, but uh, no, I'm so. But um, he was, they didn't like his music, what they mm. had done. And so um, one day they were, um, David Lean was brought down to listen to Maurice Jarre, and mm. uh, Jarre just went onto the piano, started playing his theme. Mm. And next thing you know, he had his hand on his shoulder and said, This is it. This yeah. is what we're going for. Absolutely. And he only had six weeks to compose it. Two hours worth of music, or two and a half hours, whatever it was for the, and, the, and that's all he had. An amazing, amazing score. Oh, it's it's, it's one of the all-time greats, isn't it? Yeah, and it's so good that you we got a three-hour, forty-two-minute uh, movie, and yet for the first five minutes, it's just a score. 
Yeah. It, it's justified, isn't it, though? You, it is. You, you know, you have this, as you say, this long overture at the beginning of the movie, and it runs through all the different themes, and it's, yeah, it, it's tribal, it's dangerous, it's rapturous, it's adventurous, it's fun. It, it contains all the moods of the film. It's it's an incredible score, and it and it adds a kind of otherworldly quality which matches the, the images that we're presented with. It's, it's just absolutely incredible yeah oh yeah and spielberg as you mentioned steve the spielberg connection he has talked at length of his love for lawrence of arabia and he was involved in the restoration of it along with martin scorsese and producer of my favorite film john davison and when the new print was completed he he had the opportunity of watching it with David Lean, who actually gave him this this director's commentary of the film as it was playing. Mm. It was scene by scene, and Spielberg quite rightly loved that. Yet, the thing that bugs me, bearing in mind you know, Spielberg yeah. said how, what a bugs great experience too. that was, he's never given us a commentary for any of his films. No, and it, the reason he says is because he, he thinks it distracts from watching the film. Well, it's a separate oh. experience, isn't it? He doesn't it really is. understand that. You watch the film, then you watch the commentary. I mean, it's, well, you know. Mr. Spielberg, if I could just point you back in the direction of a previous film 89 episode <laughs> where myself and Neil gave a commentary on Jaws, it can be done. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Chaps, are we classing Lawrence of Arabia as a war film or a historical epic or both? And if so, where does it rank for you in either or both of those categories? Oh, I'll, I'll defer to you, Steve. Okay, well, first of all, I, I said at the very beginning that I thought this was like, um, you know, the Statue of David and, uh, you know, it is a great monumental movie, as you put it earlier, Sky. There's no doubt about it. This uh, To me, it's a character study mm. written on a huge canvas. And I think that when you first watch the film, the character study can sometimes be missed, or at least when you discuss the film, because we we always we think of the wonderful images, we think of the, you know, the, the fantastic editing. But to me, at heart, even though it's a massive film, three hours forty minutes, covering war, covering battles, covering politics, covering you know uh, all these things, religion, everything, it's a character study about one man. And I, that's what I think that the reason why it works so much, so well. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. So I didn't answer your question. But... Hey, guys, <laughs> it's an easy question than the one I dropped on you in Citizen Kane, wasn't it? Didn't I ask him, um, is Citizen Kane the greatest film I've ever made? Uh, I think well, we this one's this yes one. No. That was yeah. at least, you know, there's no wrong answer there. I mean, I don't, in my mind, I don't think of it as a war movie. I, I think of it as an epic. But at the yes. same time, obviously, it is... I mean, it's everything that you just said it is. It isn't just a war movie. It's a character study. It's a historical drama. And it's a character study. And I, I can't really do much more than echo what, what Steve just said, really, which is that it is a very close, very complex character study that is combined with extraordinary imagery and that's the thing that makes it really really special so it contains all of the elements that you just discussed it is partly a war movie but um i don't in my mind it isn't i don't think of it in that way i think of it as possibly a unique combination of uh, epic imagery and very very in-depth character study yeah it's it's a character study in the same way as raging bull oh steve i was driver. just gonna say yeah. raging bull raging bull <laughs> you know, taxi driver yeah but it's just made in the same way as um Ben Hur and the Ten mm. Commandments, mm. and it's this perfect combination of these two very, very different styles. Well, I say it's very different. Sometimes it seems that if you're going to make a grand film, 
then sometimes the characters are left out and are forgotten because you're thinking of the images. And that's mm. something that is often uh, an acquisition that's often thrown at some of these, um, mm. you know, big epics. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think that's what Lean, Lean said made the film so special. Uh, when he was being sort of dragged out of the desert by Sam Spiegel, he said that the thing, you know, we, he said we've seen good scenes before, we've seen good characters before, but it's the flavour of the film, it's the spectacle, it's the camels, it's the horses, it's the sand, all of that, that's the thing that makes it special. And it's it's just the combination of the two really, really good, close writing and extraordinary spectacle that make the film the masterpiece that it is. Oh yeah, and, and you know, guys, I can't add anything better than what you guys have, uh, you know, the words you used to sum this film up. Because for me personally, even though it is technically a film about World War One. I've always tended to think of it as a historical epic, in which case it's certainly up there in with my top three historical epics. And in terms of the filmmaking prowess, you know, the sheer balls and ambition which David Lean and the entire production showed, the performances, the score, the cinematography, which could, this could well be the most beautiful film ever made. Mm. I, I think mm. I, I can think of very few others. Agreed. And all of those things coming together, I think it is without doubt one of the greatest films ever made and as spielberg said it's a miracle of a film yeah yeah all the pieces fell together in the right way they got all the right people and sometimes a bit against the odds like they almost didn't have omar sharif we could yeah. have had marlon brando in the in the main role you know uh we could have had someone else writing the score i mean certainly you know maurice jar was not the first the second the third the fourth or the fifth choice and yet all the people are the right people and it's one of those accidents of fate that sometimes need to happen in order for a masterpiece to create to be created and you know and for the film to be put off decade after decade after decade until david lean is ready until it's the right decade to make a film this ambiguous and difficult you know it's it's all these things just falling together perfectly to create this wonderful thing and you have to make it this big you have to make it this big to get to capture who this character was mm. yeah and the true. circumstances in which he was um, operating yeah. So, Stephen, you said at the opening that you, you said that uh, Bridge on the River Kwai was your favourite lean film, and and has, has this now on these on this rewatch supplanted it? I'm not sure. Before we started talking, I would have said no, and now I'm probably going to say yes. So. <laughs> I've, I've talked myself into it. I mean, I think, you know, this is born of me watching the film multiple times in preparation for this. So I think that Bridge on the River Kwai is a more perfect film. I think that the highs of Lawrence of Arabia go much higher than Bridge on the River Kwai. But yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to call it a draw. I can't really make a decision. <laughs> That's a perfect character study as well, though, the Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, God, similar. Yeah. You know, 100%. again, it's a, it's a small story writ large. Mm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So there we have it. Lawrence of Arabia finally given the film 89 treatment. If you've enjoyed the episode and our content in general, then please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And if that platform happens to be Apple Podcasts, please give us a positive review as that will help further increase our visibility. And you know the same goes for Spotify and all the other podcast providers. We, we've had a number of uh, really humbling uh, reviews from people on Apple Podcasts recently, which we've tried to put out on, on Twitter as, as a thank you. And you know, thank you so much for the people who've left them. Anyone else that hasn't, please, you would be helping us a great deal if you could just you know put your thoughts in a few words as to why you love the podcast and and you know just for other people to to find us. Stephen, thank you so much for for joining Steve and I. We always love yeah. talking film with you, and it's you been know, an honor, isn't it? Yeah, you know, even the preparation 
you know, for this episode, you know, you know, the three of us and, as it turns out, unfortunately, Dave Eaves, he was meant to join us to complete the Citizen Kane team, but he couldn't make it because of the chaotic life that he's got, which we, you know, we all fully understand because we've all got other commitments. And we really do hope to get Dave back on soon. But Stephen, thank you so much for joining us and your continued support. But where can people find you if they want to reach you and, and, and hit you up and chat about all things film related? And you know, what other kind of film related projects have you got going on? Sure. Well, first of all, it's it's been an absolute honour. It's it's always fun talking to you. It's just such a you know a relaxed fun forum to talk about the things that we love so i'm i'm so grateful that you've invited me back it's been a blast and i've loved watching the film and finding out about the film and just taking the the deep dive um in terms of where people can find me um so my personal twitter is that sj saunders uh i have a website called uh the culture pages so that's uh www.culturepages.co.uk or on twitter at culture pages uk and yeah if you want to contact me or see what i'm doing or what i'm you know read what i'm writing about that's that's the place to go yeah best place to contact me is on twitter and it's at welsh bluesman for all things movies and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and you can find uh, the rest of the Film 89 team at Film 89 UK on Twitter and Facebook. And please check out the website film89.co.uk, where you will find reams of articles from myself, Stephen, and also you, Stephen Saunders, and uh, Neil Ritchie, and everyone else that supported us over the years and helped uh, add to the innumerable articles which you'll find on the website. I think that's it, guys. Uh, I think all that's left to say is uh, our usual uh, signing out thing of. Stay safe. Please be excellent to one another. But more importantly, stay classy. <laughs>